Hello, everyone, and welcome to Late Night Ubuntu Podcast at OGCAM. Late night at four o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, uh, so we're going to do a bit of news first, and then we're going to have some Q&A that has been submitted. Uh, we don't have a roaming mic, so I'm afraid none of, you, none of you get to be on the podcast today unless you submitted a question and we decided to go for it. So let's start with a bit of news then. And the first one is that Nextcloud are partnering with various educational companies and organizations, including Moodle, and they're going to go for a big push into education. Now, I put this in because, Mark, don't you have something to do with Moodle? Uh, I am a Moodle developer by day, yes. Um, so uh, they're, generally, yeah, this is an interesting thing to see that um, the direction that Nextcloud are going in. I mean, from from the Moodle perspective, I don't think it's a massively surprising thing because Moodle has, for had for a long time, had um, repository plugins which let you just connect to another system which stores files and then it'll pull those, those files in and serve them to users. So that's not a big deal from the Moodle point of view. But there is something about this which caught my eye and that's the fact that they said um, their sort of next phase of development for this is going to be to include this plugin as part of the core, uh, sorry, the standard Moodle package. So what you tend to get with Moodle is you've got the Moodle core stuff, which is all the APIs and the database stuff, and then a load of plugins, and then you can download other plugins. Um, but Moodle.org will distribute the core stuff with some core plugins as like a distribution of Moodle. Uh, and it's really quite unusual, especially more recently, for them to add another plugin to the core distribution. They have tended much more to say, develop new stuff as plugins, and we'll just let people download that if they want it. So there's obviously a deal being made here, um, I expect, for them to go the extra step of including this as a standard thing with Moodle. Well, that's what I was going to get to. What's happening financially with this? Nextcloud must be making a few quid out of it. It's presumably a, a new revenue stream for them. Well, it depends on... Um, I mean, it could be that that um, Nextcloud are using funding which they have to to work with their partners to get Nextcloud into like integrated with these other systems rather than each of those other systems paying Nextcloud for the integration. I'm not I, I suspect it's the first way around rather than the second way around. Okay. But this is uh Nextcloud isn't it? It's, it's almost like a fork of Nextcloud, isn't it? It's, they're calling it their educational version, but it's basically we've selected these uh 10 applications that you can install as a as an educational um uh, university suite. or something yeah. or suite um, five of them are new with partners such as Moodle and the other five are, are standard but it's basically Nextcloud been stripped down to make it easy for for educators to use yeah I'd say it's, it's more of a Nextcloud distribution than it is a fork because it's still it's still the same Nextcloud core isn't it it's just with different apps yep installed yeah, so yeah like a different packaging right well Martin's got nothing to say about this so let's move on <laughs> let's talk about Solus 3 has been released and Solus, of course, is the distro that Ike makes, and he's on our podcast normally, but he's too poor to fly over from Ireland, unfortunately. So, so does that mean we can say horrible things about Solus and we get no... We've uh, only got good things to say about oh, okay. Solus. Well, yeah, no wonder you've only got good things to say, because one of the Solus major things... Brilliant. Yeah, one of the major things here now is full snap support. Yep, it's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, so uh, for those of you that weren't in my talk earlier, I work on the Snapcraft team uh, working to make snaps available on all Linux distributions. And uh, Ike had evaluated the Snap and Flatpak ecosystem some months ago and decided that that wasn't for him, then elected uh, to choose Flatpak and has now added full-blooded confined Snap support to Solus. And he's really done this because it's a way for him to access software that his inclusion policy in Solus wouldn't normally permit. And it also gives him access to stuff that he can't package easily and has to use some third-party workarounds. So it's, uh, it's good for Solus and it's good for Snaps. Is it... Uh... Does it really sort of fly your flag when there's a distribution that wants to include snaps and they have to have someone from Canonical hold their hand specifically to take them through to having that in their distribution? To be fair, there wasn't a lot of hand-holding in Ike's case. It was just introducing him to people should he need to seek additional assistance. And convincing him to do it in the first place. Well, I didn't <laughs> actually have to convince him very much, to be honest with you. Um, once he'd taken a look at it, um, and he saw the value it could add to Solus. He was kind of sold on the idea. It's a desktop operating system, but Snaps provides some server functionality. 
for example, Docker is a snap published by Docker. The whole Kubernetes suite is available as snaps. There's uh, Nextcloud is a snap. You know, there's easy ways to get software that he wouldn't ordinarily be able to access. And then there's some desktop stuff like Brave. Um, but in terms of what was required, um, you do need uh, AppArmor, which is um, uh, provides uh, the additional context for security controls and what have you. And Ikey, uh, the, the only question he asked is, was there someone on hand to he could ask about those questions about how to integrate that? But as it happened, he he really did it very quickly and much by himself. So mentioning App Armor brings us nicely on to our, our next news item, which is uh, whether or not snaps should exist at all. Uh, it was raised as a, a bug originally in the Ubuntu uh, bug reporting system, and then that's been moved over to a forum post. And it's from someone within, as far as I understand, the Ubuntu community. Um, and they're just sort of questioning, well, if we've got Flatpak, should we be using snaps? Do we need this other competitor? Can we maybe learn from each other? Um, and one of the things that was raised was that Flatpaks uh, uses, uh, is able to confine things in ways that use standard things installed on all or nearly all Linux systems, whereas snaps require app armor. And, you know, an example, Solus has had to specifically implement app armor. There was, there was a number of, of questions and reasons that he'd raised this. And I wondered what your view on, on that requirement for app armor was. Uh, well, app armor is an LSM. You choose one What's of the an LSM? two as Linux security uh, something. I forget what the M stands for. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly uh, Google man it. Mandatory security controls. Um, Ike didn't have uh, an LSM in implemented, so he, and he doesn't like SE Linux, uh, which, which is the other option. So uh, going with AppArmor wasn't a big deal. And AppArmor is mostly upstream now. So I think in the Linux uh, 4.14 kernel, it's all going to be upstreamed with no additional patches required anyway. Um, and the bug that was raised was more of an opinion piece that was yeah, posted on the Yeah, it doesn't seem like the checker. kind of thing which yeah. you should raise as a bug. Yeah, it should yeah. have been a blog post, really. Yeah, and also it wasn't a community member because they'd like signed up for an account, posted an opinion piece in the bug. And it's all very hand-wavy. You know, everyone's adopting Flatpak. Okay. 66% of people. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> statistics. Uh, what's the saying? Like 84% of statistics are made up on the spot. Yeah. But one point that is sort of at least hinted at in it is that sort of can you really trust Canonical not to drop things in the future? Because look at what they have done with Unity 8 and Convergence and the whole mobile thing. Um, they basically did a bit of a Google on that, didn't they? Developed it for a while and then just completely dropped it out of the blue. And okay, looking at it from the outside right now, it seems very unlikely that they're going to do the same with snaps, but you never know. That risk is there. This was one of the sort of more valid things. Like I was reading this, I was just thinking, oh, this is just someone, you know, complaining about, oh, you know, thinking everything's a zero-sum game. Why develop this when there's another thing? But then I, yeah, what did occur to me was given that Ubuntu has just done basically what they're suggesting might happen, which is go with the other thing. So get, you know, instead of carrying on with Mir as the desktop, main desktop option, go with Wayland and so on, instead of carrying on with Unity, go with Gnome. It did make me think, okay, maybe there is a valid point to be made given that there's an alternative packaging format. By the way, I'm incredibly like not excited about packaging formats, but there, so this is the one point I have to make about this. But yeah, given that there's another packaging format, why not use that one instead? I did think that you know, there might be some validity to that argument in the first place. Martin's going to get his work hat on now. Yeah, so those of you that don't know, full disclosure, I work for Canonical, who's the company behind Ubuntu. And, uh, and don't you have something to do with Snaps? I work on the Snapcraft team. Um, so I uh, didn't put this in just to troll you or anything. No, you did. Uh, <laughs> um, the, um, the answer to the question about about, you know, will Canonical drop it? Uh, as you may know, Canonical's been through a massive restructuring recently, and there's now a focus on getting Canonical as a company profitable. And Ubuntu and projects within Ubuntu, is, there's lots of skunk work projects, lots of moonshoot projects that were absorbing lots of money and were kind of sexy and interesting, but they weren't going to deliver financially. So a lot of that stuff's been knocked on the head. And there's now a refocusing on the stuff that the business is going to be built on. And snaps are, are central to that story. Well, yeah, that's the, what I, the feeling that I get is that snaps are 
very important and with the iot stuff it's absolutely essential and that's the one of the few areas that they're actually making some money at so it would seem very unlikely to me that they would drop snaps but you never know they they might go to flat pack or something else that hasn't in you know isn't mainstream yet or might find ways to interoperate with flat pack Ooh. <laughs> Is that a hint there? Might be. Mm. That's uh, Martin's non-disclosure agreement face. <laughs> uh, right, well, uh, let's end the news uh, with a bit of good news, and that is that Gnarum has turned 20, can you believe it? And Debian has turned 24. So that means that's older than you, Mark. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, catching know, me up. Yeah, but not, not a lot to say, but it's, it's just amazing that these free software projects have been around for so long. And yeah, okay, look around this room. It's almost everyone here is using stuff. You know, there might be some KDE uh, Arch users in here, but I'm sure we've all used Debian-based distros at some point. But it, it just goes to show that after all this time, it, apart from the kind of people who are in this room, people, most normal people haven't even heard of Linux or GNOME or anything like that. So it was supposed to be good news, this, to end on. And Should somehow, we sing happy birthday? Uh, no, no, let's not do that. <laughs> no, is it out of copyright yet? I don't know. I, no. I don't risk it. Was it. Never, it yeah. should never have been considered in copyright in the first place, I think. Yeah. Warner Brothers did have to pay a lot of money to a lot of people recently, though, so that was good. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's move on to the Q&A section. Um, so we've got some questions from uh, you guys here who put them in the box, and we had some from the Google form and stuff before, uh, but I thought we'd start with uh, a question each, except uh, a question each from one of us, except Martin didn't do one because he was too lazy or something. So let's start with yours, Jesse. Okay, so my question was, if you had a million pounds, how would you put that into open source and free software, and what would you want the outcome to be? So we all have this thing where you daydream that you've won the lottery. And I often think I've daydreamed on the lottery. I've bought my house. I've done my things. And now I would then pump a million pounds into a open source free software. And, and I, you know, I just wonder what your, what your view would be. Would you put it into a, a fledgling distribution to try and make the distribution you want? Would you try and uh, pay a particular piece of software? Maybe I should be thinking more about security and, and you know, or maybe open source advocacy and and get getting the getting the word out there i would probably f look for as many software projects that i use who have some kind of monthly donation subscription thing so the the one the one related thing which i do at the moment is i give five pounds a month to the open rights group so i would probably find as many things like that where i you know i would kind of think you know i can afford five pounds a month but i can't necessarily afford 50 pounds a month going to all these various things every month but if i had a million pounds surplus just sitting there being you know i probably just find as many things as possible and give you know five pounds a month to as many things as i could just as a you know keeping the project going kind of fund okay so yeah you've you've come at the opposite end from where i would go with it uh, I would just take my million pounds and pump it all into one thing in one massive hit. Now I agree. And do you know what that thing is? Uh, have I decided? I think, but given that it's it's you know fictional money, yeah. I would go on to DistroWatch. I would go down to about thirty-ish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, that's quite good. We're about there. <laughs> and I'd maybe I don't know. I, I get, I, I'd like to see what a, a distribution could do with a million pounds of, of, you know, and they could fund all sorts of things and where they'd end up. There'd be no point in putting it into a canonical-based thing because they have a lot of money to do, do things with. Yeah. Um, if, you can, if you can get to the point where you have a developer who is paid, you end up with something like Solus. So I sort of wonder, I wonder what you could do with that. So I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't spread wide and thin, but I do agree with your point that you would end up with projects that know they could continue into yeah. the future if you've given them £1,000 a month or whatever for the next how many years so yeah. your point rather neatly lines up with mine so in my spare time i work on the mate desktop and that's a very small team of people that work on it in their spare time and if i won a million pounds i would form a company and hire the four or five people that are the core mate contributors to work on that full time because i think it's maybe you would disagree but what i see on day-to-day -day basis the amount of work that gets done by this small group of people doing it in their spare time and i i would love to see what we could do when we were all working together on it on a full-time basis would and actually you drag that that traditional desktop environment up with with modern standards in terms of hardware support and what how long you. would a million pounds last doing that um 
depends how much you pay them. I for suppose. that, yeah, it does depend how much <laughs> you, you you pay them and how well you invest the surplus to try and make right. it, you yes. know, uh, last longer. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, mine's tangentially related. Um, I would invest in a well convergence, basically, um, of mobile and desktop. That might seem a bit strange, and that's been done and didn't work, but I would invest it in Maru OS. Ah, there we go. Right. Which, that's not really convergence, though, is it? Well, that's like dual booting. Uh, somewhat. So for those so, who don't yeah, what know... what is Maru? Yeah, so Maru OS is basically an Android open source uh, project-based ROM for uh, a couple of phones and a tablet, which act just like Android most of the time, but then if you plug a screen in and a keyboard and mouse, you get a Debian desktop, which uses, I think, LexD or LexC containers in order to work. And it's a bit rough around the edges. It's very much a sort of community project at the moment. Um, but I think that that is the, the vision of convergence that I really want to see. I, I don't so, want to have the same experience on a tiny screen as a, a huge desktop or laptop. And so that that's what I th that's how I think convergence should have worked. Base it on Android, which we know works, and Debian or Ubuntu or Arch or whatever that we also know works. And and don't try and reinvent stuff. Just mash things together in a, a skillful and uh, you know a proper way. So I, I don't think it's convergence because you've got your Android environment siloed from your desktop environment. So there's no sharing of data or accounts or information. So there is no convergence. Yeah, but there could just... be. There could be quite easily. Well, no, I say quite, with, a million, with a million pounds investment, it could be quite easy to, to make that happen as far as I'm Okay, concerned. so you're saying take, take what exists and actually seamle yeah. seamlessly combine so you have, them. you have a UI which is... And, and apps which are specific to the platform, but the data is shared between them. Yeah, I mean, that's all, all just config files at the end of the day, isn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, okay, that's an, a gross oversimplification of yes. it, but it is, with a million pounds of investment, I think you could get something that oh, yeah. is, you know, potentially uh, worthy of being a, a consumer product. Because you're not, with um, what Canonical tried to do with Ubuntu phone, they started completely from scratch. And so they probably spent a lot more than a million pounds on it. Um, but they didn't have this basis already that we have with Mario, which, as I say, Android, we know works reasonably well. And Debian, we know works really well. And uh, there's no, no technical reason why it couldn't be Ubuntu or any other distro. So anyway, that's, that's my answer that I would like to see proper convergence because I always wanted it to happen. Um, and I'd criticized it quite a lot for how they went about it. And in the end... It died. So Windows Phone then? Yeah, yeah. I, I forgot my caveat about not just pumping money into your own project, but I'm now too late for that. <laughs> <laughs> However, moving on to our next question. Uh, oh, yeah, so Mark, you're one about freemium fast. Okay, right. So there's a bit of background to this. Um, I use a project called MB, which is an open source uh, media streaming server. So I have a server at home with all my media on, and I can stream it to other devices. Now, they have um, essentially a freemium model. So you... Uh, you get the basic version, which gives you a library of, of your files and lets you stream them to other things. But you can also pay for extra features like syncing to mobile devices. Um, now, uh, I I tried out the premium version, decided I didn't want it. Now, if you try and play something through the web interface with the free version, you get a pop-up which shows you the features that you could get from the premium version. And originally, there was a button that said continue. Now, when you do it, you click it and it pops up. And the button that did say continue says wait 15 seconds and counts down 15 seconds and then you can play your files. Has, has that pushed you over the edge? So what? I, so I raised a bug on the MB tracker basically um, saying that this, were, this is essentially an anti-feature. This is something which has been introduced specifically to degrade the user experience and is therefore should they therefore be removed. Um, so basically my question, but, uh, well, but the counter argument is that they are trying to make money to sustain the product. So um, if they put something in which encourages people to pay, then that's not really a bug. So my question really is, uh, it's in two parts. First of all, um, should, is, is a project justified in adding, adding things that make their software worse in order to sustain the project? And secondly, given that this is a GPL project and someone has now created a fork with just the premium version enabled by default, is it ethical to do that if you disagree with what's what they're doing to it? So, yes, who would like to start? 
Well, I would just say that I used to use a product called Subsonic, which is a bit like MB, except it's just for music. So it's like be your own Spotify at home. You could load all of your MP3s on OGS and FLAX and what have you and stream it onto your mobile devices. And they used to have a pay what you want model. Then that became a lifetime subscription model uh, if you wanted to unlock like certain features. And then they'd wanted it to be a pay monthly model and what happened was is that people who had bought the lifetime license were now being nagged because their license wasn't being renewed on a monthly basis and that was the position i was in so somebody forked that project to strip out all of the license checking because it was an open source project and what's happened now subsonic has gone closed source because the developer's trying to protect his revenue stream but somebody has now initiated a fork called libre sonic from the point at which which it was last an open source project have you answered mark's question you've just given another example that's my my background my back well is is it ethical um well well, so so in that case were they right to make it closed source in order to sustain the project yeah they're free to do whatever they want because they created the software and they can relicense it okay and i don't think anyone's done anything wrong by creating a fork from the last open sourced version of that software okay um because they're they're filling a need for people that wanted to use that product and i had no objection to paying but i was being asked to double dip Mm. i i think that the question as to whether it's ethical or not to fork it um isn't the right question really because it is it's gpl software the, the ethics are not in question is well it, is if, it, if the project dies as a result of it being forked well that's which could gonna, happen that's but then the project say. hasn't died it's just a product that has died yeah not... but the, i think the question is is it polite to, <laughs> to do that yeah and the answer is no but what you're going to do is it's free software right yeah so yeah i mean it's possible that the answer is they chose the wrong business model given that they're using the gpl yeah or chose the wrong license in the first or place. Or chose the wrong license for the business model they wanted. Yeah. Jesse, do you have any thoughts? Um, so this most closely ties in with uh, Android apps for me. They're, they're the ones that I get bugged to uh, to pay for. Yeah. And generally, if you're using an application, uh, for me, it's I'm trying to find a good radio app uh, that I can cast so I can get it onto all my um, uh, audio devices in the house on, on Google Casts. And... The the one that I've settled on, I really like. And it has smooth interface. It's very nice. It casts well. It's great. And it just pops up with ads all the blooming time. Mm. And I want a way to pay them because, you know, apps and stuff are like, what, a fiver. Yeah. It's like, I want to just pay to get rid of all those and have a nice smooth experience. But you don't have that option. I've looked on the website. I've looked on the about. There's no way of having a, a paid-for model. So it's actually, I'm... I would like there to be a paid for model. I'm coming from the opposite, the opposite yeah. side, um, but I think it, it sounds like you don't. We don't know what the finances were behind MB, yeah. and if they had a system where they asked people to pay and they had a certain uptake, yeah, and that uptake was not enough to financially sustain yeah. their development, they obviously have got to go to the next level, which is get annoying in your face, yes, and that feels like it's gone too far but we don't know what the finances are behind it and i maybe there's a, there's a can you suggest a better way of doing it because i agree the the click to continue you can say right i'm choosing to click to continue and as soon as you know youtube ads as soon as there's an ad that's more than 30 seconds yeah i'm almost like do i want to watch this youtube video that much yeah but then yeah the, 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 i suppose the difference is it's my music i do want to listen to it that much that's why i've set up this system right it's all okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, it's all it's all stored locally. Yeah. It's all on the server. Oh, it's going to be some other open source project you can use. <laughs> yeah, and well, okay, you know, and if you if, if you're going to potentially make your project nagware, then you are inviting people to leave and go elsewhere. So that's a poor decision in my in my mind. Fair enough. Yep, yep. You should add value to your product to compel people to pay pay for it, not nag them into ponying up money. Yeah, not degrade the free version. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, right. So uh, a couple of questions that somewhat go together. Uh, how did you get into using Linux? That's from MadBob78. Uh, and what distro do you use and why? That's from Thomas Morgan. Um, so, so this is our, our Linux origin story. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, who's who's going to go first then? 
Okay. Uh, I got into Linux. I was working in retail systems like Sainsbury's and Marks and Spencer's and that sort of thing. And we had Xenix and SCO Unix that we were using on some of the back end stuff. And I was really taken with the fact that this Unix thing could do multitasking and Microsoft DOS couldn't. And I couldn't afford Xenix or SCO Unix. And I happened to find out there was this thing called Linux, which was just like these expensive Unix systems that I had. So I, I went and found, I think it was Idrisil. Linux in the um, like 94, something like that. And that was my first Linux. And that's how I got started. I think, uh, well, I was at university and uh, everyone had XP, the, the flagship that is, uh, was. Um, and uh, it must have been a drunk, hazy, crazy night. And a friend of mine said, oh, I've been dicking around with this Linux thing and I can almost get the wireless to work. Aren't I good? <laughs> um, and uh, and so he, he knew that I was sort of nerdy and enjoyed as tinkering as much as you could with uh, the Microsoft products. And so he said, you should really give it a go. I sort of dipped my toe in a little bit, but it was only after I left university, I didn't need a computer to work every single time I opened it. And I could then allow myself to tinker to the point where I could understand it. And now it works every time I open it. And occasionally DD over your hard disk. Yeah, so I don't understand that much. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was sort of shortly after university, I was uh, introduced by a friend. Cool. Uh, so my origin story uh, revolves around XP as well. So I was pretty poor at the time, and I am um, a musician, and I wanted to record music and stuff. And so I had a P4 box with 512 of RAM, 512 megabytes of RAM. And this this wasn't even that long ago, to be honest. It was only about 10 years ago, maybe. Um, and so I had to squeeze every bit of performance out of that machine um, and so I got into Nlite. I don't know if anyone's heard of Nlite. It's yeah. a way to strip down Windows ISOs and take out all the bloat and all the security and all the rest of it. And I managed to... <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. Well, <laughs> well, it is a great idea if you've got a machine that's not connected to the network. Okay. If you only want to run a specific uh, set of right. applications, yep. Yep. music making stuff. Fair enough. Um, and synths and all the rest of it. Um, but that obviously leaves you the problem of, do you connect it to the inter internet, the network, and be completely insecure, or do you dual boot with Linux? And that's what I started to do. I, I got into Linux, and I was experimenting, experimenting with it for a bit, and then in the end, I just said, right, we're going to use this as the main operating system, and um, just kept Windows around for the little things that I needed. And so it was basically... Um, the insecurity of Windows that pushed me over to the security of Linux. And now I wouldn't even log into my email on a Windows machine. And which distro did you use? Oh, yeah, we didn't answer that. Um, I started with Ubuntu. You haven't done your origin story either yet. No. Oh, yeah. Well, well, I started with Ubuntu, and then I went all around the houses. I tried all different distros, um, some that were really lightweight and all the rest of it. Um, and then settled on Zubuntu, with, which is Ubuntu with XFCE. And I just stick to the LTSs and just have very few problems and things just work. Cool. Okay, so my origin story, I think, comes from two places. First of all, I used to be part of an online um, role-playing forum called Nation States, which was hosted on a really dodgy server. And I was using uh, Internet Explorer at the time. And so you would write a really long post and then you press submit mm. and then you would just get like a 500 error page and you've lost your post. And someone posted on the forum saying, oh, if you use this Mozilla browser, it doesn't do that. It just pops up a dialogue saying like no data and then you can press submit again. So I downloaded that and then found out about this open source thing. Um, and then I think a couple of years later, I was playing. So yeah, we were using Windows 2000, I think, on our on our PC at home. And I got into playing with things like window blinds in Aston Shell, which basically let you customize the look and feel. And there were themes which mimicked um, Linux desktops at the time. So there was one which mimicked KDE. And I thought, oh, this looks fancy and bright and colorful. I wonder what KDE is. So I looked it up and found out, oh, that's this open source thing as well. Uh, and then... And then I'd heard about this Linux thing through another friend. And so I think I downloaded Nopix and started running it as a live uh, a live CD with like some persistent storage. Um, and then, uh, yeah, but since I think the first time I actually properly installed it to a hard disk, I used Ubuntu and have basically used it ever since. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, I should have mentioned that the, the idea that you can do these live 
boots and and have oh, a completely yeah. working system that was what it was basically what made me use it in the first place that was incredible like putting Nopix in and seeing it do the boot where you have all this colored text come down it says oh you've got this hardware you've got this hardware you've got this hardware you're like, oh i didn't know i had that and yeah just knowing that it can do all of this stuff and i was just like oh, this is the most amazing thing i've ever put in my computer yeah we take it for granted now that you can have a, a live environment yeah but it, that is still quite a big thing. I mean, you don't even have that with Windows, do you? Mm, I don't no. think. No. It's still to this day. Um, and it can be so useful. And for me, being able to try out all the different Linux distros like that is is what swayed me, I think. So what's your distro of choice these days, Mark? It's still Ubuntu. Right. Still stock Ubuntu at the moment. But was I it might... Kubuntu for a while? It was Right, so yes, I think I started off with KDE. I tried GNOME. So yeah, I tried my first, very first live CD was... Uh, Gnopix, which was based on Ubuntu Warty, the very first, <laughs> the very first Ubuntu release, uh, and then I tried. I think Breezy was the first, um, was the first Ubuntu release. So yeah, I tried that, and I basically stuck with with that until I think Ubuntu twelve oh four when Unity um, swayed me with its uh, charms. So um, so Martin, what distro do you use? <laughs> I use the mighty Ubuntu Mate. And uh, really? uh, by popular demand, I will be doing the Ubuntu Mate 1710 preview talk again tomorrow for those of you that missed it today. But but you didn't used to use Ubuntu Mate, did you? What did you uh, used to use? Um, well, prior to doing Ubuntu Mate Arch Linux, I was an Arch Linux TU, so that's um, developer for Arch Linux. And prior to that, Ubuntu, and prior to that, Crux, which is sort of um, what actually inspired um, Arch. Oh, interesting. Uh, and Jesse, you use Arch, don't you? Uh, I'm I'm sort of in flux at the moment, and is the, that another the, distro? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, never the quite sure what distro's got on his hard disk, <laughs> <laughs> or the, how uh, it got there. The, the the distro that I want to use, I don't think it's yet been made, so I'm I'm still messing about. I've just put Solus, coincidentally, uh, given the news, just put Solus on my laptop, and we'll be giving uh, Ike some feedback on that. So uh, what, what's missing? What what are you looking for in a Linux distribution which doesn't currently exist? Uh, I, I quite like GNOME, but I don't necessarily like it being on top of... the, the I don't want it to be on top of Ubuntu, and solely out of the fact that I know it and I'm comfortable in it. It's like a nice little home I can go back to. Yeah. But you don't learn, I don't necessarily learn anything by right. breaking things. Okay. And so I, that's sort of why I went around to Arch was because you try things and you mess it up yeah. and you learn a lot more by doing that. I think that's true. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I learn a lot less now than I did in my first couple of because, years. You know, all these yeah. things like um, rollback uh, on snaps and things like this, yeah. your, your hand is held. And it's it's very comfortable and it's very safe and that's absolutely fantastic. But I don't necessarily need safe. Mm. I <laughs> you have to live on the edge, don't you? Yeah, yeah, bleeding edge yeah. or nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you need Gen two, uh, right? I don't have that much time. Uh, <laughs> tangentially related, uh, still. Uh, next question: In a world with only one single Linux distro, would you still use Linux? Okay, I have to ask: Are we looking at this from the point of view <laughs> of? There's only ever been one, and there is one, and that's all the world knows. Or tomorrow, everything but Fedora is removed. <laughs> oh, you, you specifically pick Fedora there? Yeah, it's the first one that came to mind. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I, in either case, I think I'd answer yes, because yeah. I find it interesting to use, and I like the way it does things. And yeah, so I'd still use Linux. Well, yeah, I'd rather use Unity than Windows. And that's saying something. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would still use Linux because not that it's Linux, but because of the licenses that sit around all of that software enables me to collaborate with people. And that's what I'm really interested in doing in my spare time is working with other people who are like-minded and making stuff. And it's the licenses around all of that software that make that happen. So uh, I would continue to use it for that reason. And of course, we assume that if there's only one Linux distro, then everyone who's currently working on Linux distros would be working on that as one big happy family and they get loads done. It'd be the mega distro, yeah. yeah. It's like that April Fool's joke that came out. I don't remember that one. Oh, there was an April Fool's like five or six years ago and it was an announcement that Arch and Ubuntu and Gentoo and Fedora were going to take the package management from Arch, the <laughs> the kernel from Ubuntu, the the way in which Gentoo does its install or whatever it was, and like take the best of all and make this mega one. And everyone got really excited and then it was like April Fool's. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. All uh, right, let's move on. Um, 
This is another anonymous one. Shuttleworth abandoning Unity 8 and Convergence and admission of failure. Where next for Ubuntu? Well, clearly, yes, it was an admission of failure. Yeah, I think that there's no doubt from from the announcements. There's no doubt in the tone that, that that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, it was like we tried. Mm, it didn't yeah, work. People didn't want it. It didn't work. Yeah. So yes, to that bit. Where next for Ubuntu? I don't know. Maybe we should ask someone who knows what's going on. Uh, yeah, thank you very much, Mark. So, <laughs> I the more I hear about IoT things, and the more I hear about uh, the way in which Ubuntu Core is being made, I I just want everyone who makes an IoT device to use Ubuntu Core, and I. I as someone who isn't invested in Ubuntu, I just you know thought I'd say that on an open platform. Well, thank you. Um, so, what's going on at Ubuntu? I, I, I mentioned this earlier. You know, there's been a, re- a reorganization of the the company, and for those, uh, I I think a lot of people here are probably what we classify as enthusiasts. You know, you're people using Linux on the desktop. You're interested in making Raspberry Pis, all of that sort of stuff. So, you probably care about the Linux desktop, um, and the investment from Ubuntu is still there in the Linux desktop. They're making the transition away from Unity. So the Unity 8 project, which was the convergence project to bring tablets and phones and the desktop all, all harmonized under one code, that's been axed and that's been picked up by the community. Um, Unity 7 is now effectively end of life. Um, and Ubuntu are moving to GNOME. So the next Ubuntu desktop, 17.10 in October, will be based on GNOME 3. Um, and you'll be presented with two login options, uh, sessions. You'll have an Ubuntu session, which will be GNOME, with customizations to deliver the Ubuntu experience on top of GNOME 3, or, and there will be a vanilla GNOME 3. So if you are a GNOME fan and you like your extensions in a particular way, you can use that one and customize it the so way you like So if you're like it. someone who currently uses Ubuntu GNOME, yeah, you can carry yeah. on using it like exactly. that. Exactly. And, and what's what's an a what, sorry? What's a uh, Ubuntu tweak that makes it more familiar? Are you talking about a taskbar down the left hand side, like Unity? Is that sort of thing? Yeah. So uh, they're going to add a dock. So there's been a number of polls and opinion surveys gathered through the likes of Hacker News and OMG Ubuntu and Reddit. They've been posted in various places, and all of that data was actually collected up and ana- analysed internally. And there was an overwhelming demand for that dock down the side so there's going to be a lightweight dock that's being added to facilitate that requirement but the other thing that came uh, out of that was stuff should just work better so <laughs> bluetooth oh, easy bluetooth should just work audio should just work the trackpad should do gestures hardware video acceleration should just work like it does on the other platforms. So actually, a lot of what's going on in Ubuntu right now isn't so much about what's going to happen on the skin on the top. I know that we've triaged a thousand bugs in the Bluetooth stack, and there's been hundreds of fixes go back through that. The same with Network Manager. Uh, The same is true on Pulse Audio, and also fixing bugs in in various points in the stack with uh, video acceleration so that we'll be able to deliver hardware acceleration across the board so it's those sorts of things that are driving this now just to make everything work better so this definitely isn't an abandonment of linux on the desktop as no, some people no have been no that, that was sort of the death knell of ubuntu was you know declared when this news came out and that, no, that was when happening. the buttons moved <laughs> <laughs> no it was uh, yeah. yeah so no the the ubuntu desktop will continue on and uh commercial interests for canonical are server cloud and iot and most importantly, the buttons are going back to the proper side. They've already moved. Yes. Um, right. So the idea of this Q&A was that it wouldn't all be Linuxy stuff, um, but it seems that most of them are. But a question that I had uh, that seems somewhat timely, um, do you think GoDaddy, Google, Cloudflare, etc., were right to refuse the far-right uh, websites as customers? So that there's been a lot of stuff going on in America, as we know, that's pretty bad and um some very hateful horrible people have had their websites effectively censored by these companies and the the question is do you think that those companies were in the right to do that okay uh, my answer to that is well there there is obviously a big philosophical debate behind this but given that this is a technology podcast i'm going to keep it short essentially my answer is yes because i don't believe that being tolerant means you have to tolerate intolerance 
Well, I unsurprisingly disagree. I thought you would. Yeah, because, uh, as I say... Because you hate freedom. Well, (laughs) right. These, These people who want to spout this racist, horrible stuff that's part of free speech. That's that's the price you pay for free speech. You you have to have the right to say horrible things, and I have to have the right to say that you are a horrible person for doing that, and to to point that out. And when you start censoring people, where does it end? Now, conversely, I think that these companies have every right to censor whatever they want. They're private companies. Um, if it was, I can. It, I might, we might be talking about a different thing. If I can with denying people domains, then you know there's no competition there. But it, you can always find someone else, in theory, for your web host or whatever, someone who uh, doesn't mind your intolerant views. And I, I think that you do have to tolerate intolerance and you do have to point it out. I mean, I think we're just philosophically um, opposed on this issue. It's, yes, it's no, I... I, I... I before I gave my answer, I already knew that we would be um, yeah. having yeah. having had discussions with you before. I, I'm sort of aware of your position, so in this case, I'm not going to use this podcast to try and argue you out of that position. <laughs> but I do disagree with you. So I, I see both sides of the argument. Um, on the one hand, I agree that these websites have got abhorrent material on them, and it shouldn't be out there. But it's also the thin end of the wedge of censoring these sites. If it becomes the norm that this is acceptable and then it starts encroaching, what's the next thing that gets censored or taken down? Um, so I, I have concerns from that point of view. And also, I don't, I don't have a problem with these sites existing and these people being given a platform. I don't know if you remember some years ago, uh, Nick Griffin from the BMP was on Question Time. And it was absolutely brilliant for exposing just how clueless he was. Uh, and everyone was able to see, well, everyone was able to see that for themselves. And sometimes having platforms like this and for them to put their views across, you can see just how, um, incompatible their thinking is with, um, most of society. Jesse, you're a proper authoritarian. What, what do you think? Um, I guess if, we're at a point with these sorts of websites that everyone in society agrees they're a bad thing. Like if there's if there's you know the de- decapitation videos and things like this on web on YouTube, no one is surprised when they're taken down. And I think if as a society we're agreed that this is something which shouldn't have a platform on which to spread, then we should lock it down. Well, unfortunately, not everyone thinks that the, the kind of racist views are bad there are a lot of people especially in america who agree with that stuff and you know you, you, so yes but the those are the people who we shouldn't be giving the platform to yeah but who decides tricky. we do as a society we say no that's going to lead to us having our freedom to decide this taken away from us so therefore we need to stop it before it gets to that point well you've convinced me mark so <laughs> <laughs> as i knew i would <laughs> Um, okay, right. so uh, this is a, a much lighter one, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> what is the most intriguing computer sold with Linux pre-installed in the last 18 months? Now, there is clearly one correct answer to this, which I will tell you in a minute, but Mark? Uh, intriguing computer. Well, I've been... You see, I feel like I should give a more interesting answer than this because it seems like there's probably loads of really cool, like, small single-board computers doing all sorts of, all sorts of stuff or embedded devices, but I've been reviewing a lot of... Uh, laptops and stuff for the for the ubuntu podcast um and we've been talking about other machines like that so i actually really liked the dell um what was it uh precision uh, precision 5510 or 5520 which i reviewed 5520 which i reviewed it is the best laptop i've ever used and it kind of blew me away with how amazing it is and it sold with ubuntu pre-installed Okay, okay, so I, I don't have the benefit of lots and lots of laptops coming through my front door to <laughs> review and, you know, that, that hard life that you leave. Late, late night Linux needs to up the game. <laughs> well, we have been offered, but uh, for, so, for some reasons we've declined, put it that way. So I, I see, I, th- I think I see one on the table. Is that an XPS 13? Yes. My answer would be an XPS 13. I think having a flagship 
laptop, which is is important to say we're not just giving it away on a netbook or something rubbish that Linux makes the most out of the low hardware. Give it good hardware, let it fly, have a really nice screen, have all those things that you want. It's you know nice and thin. It's got all the all the tick boxes that you want from a laptop, but it also has longevity. And I think that is there's an important point to make. It's on what it's fourth iteration, mm, fifth, I, fifth. And so Dell has obviously gone out, put their toe in the water, and said it's quite warm. Let's carry on. And they've carried on making them and putting them out, and and they're clearly selling. And I know that more because of the success of the XPS 13, more laptops like the one you mentioned, Mark, are coming out with Linux from Dell, and and that's why I think is that's an important uh, laptop. Yes, Dell may be in. Growing their portfolio of Linux devices. Ooh. Yet more inside. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm going to deliberately avoid the one correct answer um, <laughs> to leave that for Joe. Uh, the most intriguing device uh, in the last 18 months is, of course, the Entroware Athena, which they have on their website right now, <laughs> pre installed with Ubuntu Mate. Uh, for personal reasons, but also it was a real workhorse machine. I had a, a massive, massive. Are those personal reasons because you named it? I did name that one as it happens, yes. <laughs> yeah. you, you also named Late Night Linux, fun fact. I did, this is true. Um, but the reason I like the Athena is I had a really big dual Xeon tower computer, and it had 32 gigs of RAM in it, and it had an NVIDIA graphics card in it, and it took 750 watts of power, and it was like hip height, it was massive. And the Entraware Athena that I got to replace it has 64 gigs of RAM, an 8-core CPU three terabytes of SSD storage and an NVIDIA 980M in it. And it's just like a total workhorse machine. And this laptop that's a 15.6-inch form factor replaced this massive machine, and I thought that was fantastic. Well, they, they have been pretty boring answers, I think, because they, they are desirable. That XPS 13 that I'm looking at here is probably the most desirable computer running Linux, and I would love to be able to afford one, but I can't. Um, obviously, you've got all the Entraware ones, and you know System76, and all the rest of that. That is, um, you know, it's good to have all that. But for me, uh, they're desirable, but not intriguing. What is intriguing for me is the uh, is it GPD Pocket? Ah, uh-huh. that is the only correct answer. Is that one up there? Right, yeah. I must have a look mine's, at that later. Mine's in the post. Uh, <laughs> Nice. Uh, it's, it's, we'll both be pleased because it's running uh, Ubuntu Mate by the sounds of things, uh, or at least Mate. And so w- what's interesting about it is it is a tablet screen with, uh, it's a seven inch tablet screen in a tiny little sort of almost sub netbook form factor, but with uh, a, uh, a, a fairly reasonable Atom chip in it. Um, I'm very interested to hear um, about whether or not it's, um, it will run. Uh, vanilla distributions. I tell you what. Here's an idea. You're you're right at the back. How about tomorrow, if possible, John? We have another lightning talk slot, and I invite you to tell us about that device tomorrow. All right. Well, right. Do a half hour presentation <laughs> and write it up. I'm sure plenty of people will come. Um, I agree. I backed the GPD Pocket as well. Um, so that's on its way. And I also backed an, uh, another one that's very similar called the Gemini, uh, which is a similar type of device. So that's not due until like November, December time. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really small form factor, like netbooks of old, but very, very tiny. I'm very curious about how they'll perform. Yeah, I wasn't 100% convinced that they'd deliver on the Kickstarter or Indiegogo or whatever it was, so I didn't back it and now somewhat regret it. Although, I don't know, oh, there's a shake of the head. So, uh, yeah, well, I look forward to checking it out later. Um, All right, well, we've got a few minutes left. So the last one, uh, how do you all feel about the threat of a web browser monoculture with regards to so many open source browsers utilizing some form of WebKit or Blink Uh, and Firefox seemingly losing market share to Chrome. Is there room for a new rendering engine, e.g. NetSurf, or is it too late, and should we all just resign ourselves to Googly Doom? (laughs) Googly Uh, Doom is the name of my new death metal band. Yeah. And this is from uh, someone whose name I can't pronounce. So um, (laughs) It's a screen name. He's not just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, It's just a load of random characters. So, well, I mean, we have to... Firefox are trying to fight back um, you know, Mozilla trying to fight back with Firefox. But if you look at any stats, basically Chrome is just totally dominant now. Um, I still use Firefox. Um, but I suppose the question is, is there room for another 
engine. For, for me, no. I don't think that we should waste the effort on that because um, if we all concentrate on Firefox and make that as good as it possibly can be, then it's got more of a chance of um, being able to uh, compete with Chrome. Not that it's got any chance at all, I don't think, unfortunately. I think that it will continue. They've got enough money to keep developing it. I'm going to keep using it for the time being. It, the, the latest release, 55, is probably the best one for a long time, and it has improved. Once they make it so that the old extensions stop working, I think it's going to have another drop off a cliff when people move over to Chrome where the extensions will work. But yeah, short answer, no. Concentrate on Firefox. Yeah, so you, you're drawing comparisons there with uh, Chrome and Firefox, and this is more about Blink and WebKit, which are similar technologies. Blink is derived from WebKit that most of the browsers use. And I, I think, well... Having one library, I, I, I'm always a bit cautious about monoculture, but having all of the browsers work against the same rendering engine is good for us from a po point of view of performance and security and consistency of standards. And I don't think we should create another one. The other one is what um, Mozilla are producing, and any additional effort should be focused there. And I think that those are the two, two that we should be sta standing side by side and having compete on features. Yeah, I I think that generally sounds like a sensible answer. I mean, that my my point of view is from a from a web developer, it is a pain having lots of rendering engines to worry about because you get I mean, even when everything is based on WebKit, if you develop something which works on Chrome and um and Firefox and then expect it to work in Safari, you you're laughing, really. Um there's all sorts of things which just come and bite you. So but that said, I do like having Firefox and Chrome. Yeah, it, it's it's having the competition so that, and in fact, IE as well, having the competition there so that they keep developing new features and keep getting them into browsers rather than just debating standards for ages. Someone will take it and implement it and then standardize it for rolling out. Um, I think that seems to work reasonably well. I mean, it... it things certainly move a lot quicker than they used to from that point of view of actually getting things available for developers to to build on i can't get the effort to care <laughs> <laughs> right well uh we're five minutes short but that means five minutes closer to pub o'clock so um yeah thank you everyone this has been the late night ubuntu linux podcast Yay.